our big picture view coming into this year was that the Fed was way too tight. And you could say there's always that proverbial line that they're going to hike until they break something. Well, it's pretty clear they're breaking something. The question is, and they've been trying to separate out that there's a distinction between the liquidity and functioning of the banking system and their inflation fight. And so we're going to find out on Wednesday just how much they're concerned about this liquidity feeding into inflation. I mean, our base case is that they still are going to do the 25 basis point hike, trying to very much separate out that they're separating the banking panic and crisis from the inflation fight. This is the Finimize podcast. I'm your host, Eddie Donmez. In this episode, I'm joined by Wisdom Tree's Chief Investment Officer, Jeremy Schwartz. We discuss Wisdom Tree's big picture macro outlook, the current banking crisis, what the Fed should do, why big banks' earnings may be pressured, what to avoid if the economy slows, and opportunities in asset allocation in 2023. This is an amazing episode that you can't miss. I hope you enjoy my conversation. Okay, Jeremy, could you just walk me through your big picture macro view right now? It's a, a great time to be here. It's so much happening in macro. Uh, we're, we're recording and discussing this the week of the Fed meeting, and you've got all sorts of bank activity, bank failures, bank take-unders happening. You know, our big picture view coming into this year was that the Fed was way too tight. And, you know, you could say there's always that proverbial line that they're going to hike until they break something. Well, it's pretty clear they're breaking something. Now, the question is, and they've been trying to separate out that there's a distinction between the liquidity and functioning of the banking system and their inflation fight. And so we're going to find out on Wednesday just how much they're concerned about this liquidity feeding into inflation. I mean, our base case is that they still are going to do the 25 basis point hike, trying to very much separate out that they're separating the banking panic and crisis from the inflation fight. You know, our view also that part of what's creating this longer term pressure that's not going away anytime soon is that the Fed funds rate being basically at 5% when the banks aren't paying 5% on deposits, that's feeding into the whole current deposit flight. There's this additional quote unquote run that happened with Silicon Valley Bank as the venture capitalists start saying, hey, I'm not sure if the bank is safe and everybody trying to get their money all at once. But there's been this longer term, you could call it bank walk, that is leaving because of the 5% you could earn in treasuries and the banks aren't paying it. So that's an underlying issue that's still with us. You know, now, should the Fed be concerned about inflation? You know, our view again is that they shouldn't be. I, our view is that even before this banking situation, that inflation was on the trajectory to coming down. I um, mean, we were concerned about the money supply in the US going negative. You know, so if you look at the long term relationship of money supply, it precedes inflation by like 12 to 18 months. It's a famous Milton Freeman quote that inflation is always never a monetary phenomena. Well, what's happening with money supply now shrinking? That is a sign that inflation pressures are coming down in the future. Uh, and so part of what we would like the do- Fed to do is pause and see the impacts are tightening before all this happened. And now you have all this happening. And you know, in a way, you could say this is it's better that this happened sooner. Like if this happened later, they would have been hiking way more. I mean, there's talk of them hiking 50 
Uh, you know, so it's better that it happened sooner. So there is a silver lining to the crisis. I, you know, again, we predicted that they would still go 25 and then pause and then start cutting pretty soon, perhaps by the June meeting. You know, but our, again, our view has been the Fed's too tight, mostly from that money supply situation and our view that inflation is way lower in the actual data than the reported data. There's things like housing which is starting to, if you if they use updated data for housing, they would see inflation is much lower than the official CPI statistics. Uh, and so that's partly where what got them to veer, veer off course there. Yeah, I mean, so much to unpack there. I heard an interesting quote, I think, on Bloomberg that the markets are in seek and destroy mode. So where I'm going with this question is we had Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, both arguably had their own idiosyncratic kind of factors What's the read through now to the European banking sector, the regional banking sector in the US? Um, and is there more kind of vulnerabilities to be exposed as a result of all this Fed tightening? Well, I do think there are more vulnerabilities in that what I talked about, that underlying economic pressure that Fed funds rates are at five, basically, you know, they, they'll be right there with this next 25 basis points. And the banks are not paying anywhere near five. They're paying less than one. Uh, most of the banks on aggregate for the deposit ratio. So if you have big deposits at these banks and they're not paying you appropriate rates, you're seeing even just last week, you know, $100 billion go into money market funds. There should be a lot more that goes into the money market funds. And, you know, now the, the banks will make it that easy, but they in the pressure for the banks is going to pressure their earnings. So that's one of the things that you know, even if there's not a deposit flight from the banks that they actually have to raise rates to pay their cost of capital should be going up because they should be paying the depositors more. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing how little they are paying in general. And so I think that's the biggest leftover question is where is the worries come first and then those worries amplify. But it's a long-term worry because of that 5% threshold is that the banks are failing the depositors by not paying them the appropriate interest rates, more so than even just, hey, the banks are failing because they have bad loans like we had in the financial crisis. This is, they're not paying the depositors and you had the sharpest rise in rates and now people are paying attention and they're increasingly paying attention. So that's, that's going to be the underlying big picture theme for a while, that there's going to be more of that pressure you know, again, just because they're not paying the appropriate rates. Yeah, and no, there's this uh, kind of terminology that's uh, emerged over the last kind of couple of weeks, which is like that two-tiered banking system. You've got the big, big banks, JP Morgan, City, Bank of America, etc., and then you've got the regional banks. So is what you're talking to uh, a banking kind of general problem? Um, and will big banks experience this as well? Everyone has the same issue. All of them are not paying the appropriate rates. So, you know, now maybe the big banks make it easier to get to the money market funds. I, you know, is that a true statement? I'm not entirely sure. I've seen the deposits trend lower at both the large and small banks. Probably they're, 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 they're trending faster at the smaller banks. And that's the comfort issue that you're talking about that, hey, if you're too big to fail, there's more comfort there. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, even Janet Yellen in her testimony was asked about this question about community banks where there's not the deposit insurance versus if you become systemically important, we will bail you out as a depositor. We'll make sure your deposits are safe, but not everybody. There's all sorts of other questions that we should be doing steps to reform the deposit insurance program uh, and how much it would cost. We've heard some estimates that might cost 10 basis points to insure all deposits. And you think about how much people are paying 
by again the banks not paying appropriate interest rates, they're paying four hundred basis points uh, at least. And you know, so ten basis points for broad insurance is not a big number. We need to reform the whole deposit insurance program so there's less of that big bank versus small bank issue. Uh, but yeah, the small banks could start paying more on their deposits and also be you know attract more capital from that as well. Yeah. And and kind of back to interest rates and fixed income, because I know you've got a huge amount of expertise kind of in this area. How dramatic have these moves in the fixed income markets been if you look at the two-year yield in the US, um, in Germany, in, in the UK, the yield curve inversion that was negative 100 basis points now, you know, um, not, not as much. Um, what have you made and how kind of spectacular have some of these moves been? And what would you put this kind of fixed income volatility down to? Is it uncertainty around Fed policy, what they're going to do next? What does this kind of speak to uh, in your opinion? It is an interesting question. People have wanted to see capitulation in equities by saying that the VIX yield, the VIX volatility gauge spikes, you know, and will it spike to the, the quote unquote, you know, 50s as a sign of capitulation? Well, bond volatility has certainly been at record highs. There's no question the volatility in, in many parts of the market have, have been coming from the bond market volatility. Uh, I mean, one of the themes to start there was that, hey, there's income back in fixed income. And you don't have to take a lot of risk to get nice yields. Again, 5% in short-term treasuries, what doesn't get much better than that. But you know, the, even the after-inflation yields on longer-duration securities, you, you didn't quite get to 2% on the 10-year tips. You were getting in the high you know, one and a half and above. That's come back down with all the drop in yields on the longer time frame. But you are getting positive real yields. I mean, if you go back for some time, you're getting negative after inflation yields. Those are back positive. So you, you still had over 200 basis points increases in after inflation bond yields. You can get high yield bonds in that 8% and above without even taking the highest levels of risk. Uh, you know, we have a, a fundamentally screened high yield bond portfolio in the US, WFHY is our ticker. And it screens for can these bonds be paid back by saying, were these companies positive free cash flow? We do think there's going to be a big divergence between those companies that had positive free cash flow and negative free cash flow. And obviously, you're more challenged if you were having to raise more capital and you're still losing money. But yeah, there's a discount. You don't get exactly the, the super highest yields. But uh, in, in today's environment, we think it, it helps to be a little bit higher quality within that bond segment. And getting yields in the eights, you know, when I see the long-term returns to stocks, you know, I've worked with Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton School, co-author of his book, Stocks for Long Run. You know, and, and we talk about the long-term returns to stocks being six and a half to seven after inflation. Well, today the markets are higher priced. You may be at five to five and a half, maybe five to six percent after inflation. But you add two to three percent inflation, and now you're talking, you know, seven to eight and a half percent, maybe is your longer-term equity return from where you're priced at today. If you get over eight. In the bond market, and you know, high yield bonds have had half the volatility of stocks historically. That's kind of a competitive rate, uh, and so I think that is one of the places where people should be thinking about opportunities from this fallout. You know, there's worries about a recession and a deeper slowdown, and will credit spreads widen out? And yes, all that might happen. You might get six percent credit spreads versus five today, so there could be more losses. But hey, with you're getting eight, there's a lot of cushion there. You might even have a hundred basis points widening and still positive returns because you're collecting the eight plus. Um, so those are all things that we're 
watching closely. And you know, certainly if there is a further widening, I think that'd be even even extra time to think about that that high yield market. Yeah, and um, I saw a, a good graph and a good uh, report from Apollo uh, out at the weekend, and they were talking about the tightening in financial conditions and basically quantifying the impact of that um, in terms of what does this mean in, let's say, rate hikes. And they basically quantified it at uh, 1.5%. And they were talking about how after a banking crisis, we tend to see uh, a real tightening in lending standards. And if we, you know, we've obviously seen we're in the midst of a, let's say, a banking crisis. If you could just walk through, how does this actually flow through to the economy and then thus let's say, uh, corporates in the high yield or fixed income markets, what should investors avoid if we do see this really, really sharp slowdown in the economy? Eddie, that chart went around our team as well. And uh, we had that conversation directly this morning with our head of fixed income strategy, myself, on our weekly markets call. We saw that same exact chart with 150 basis points of tighter conditions, which is, hey, six more 25 basis point hikes. There's so many different ways of measuring financial conditions. Uh, you know, if you if you just Bloomberg also is a financial conditions, monetary conditions index, and that also shows things getting much, much tighter. Um, but if you say the other side of what we were just talking about, rates dropping, think about your mortgage rate. You know, now that the 10 years dropped about the mortgage rates are going to go down, these lower interest rates are in some ways a loosening of conditions. Yeah, you're going to actually be easier to get uh, a home mortgage and, and even just the two-year borrowing costs going down. So rates dropping is also on the other side of that trade. And, and some of the other financial conditions index doesn't show as much tightening as, as Torsten Slocks from, uh, from Apollo's chart showed. Um, and so it's very interesting questions. How much tightening is there? I, I tend to agree that the, the banks will have to tighten up, that the deposit move is going to have more downstream ramifications and that there could be a serious tightening. Will the Fed recognize that and pause because of that? Very interesting question. Um, but there, but the drop in rates itself is counteracting that. That it's gonna, it, it's helping bring the borrowing costs down, uh, particularly for housing, which you'd say is the most interest rate sensitive sector, and and perhaps the most impacted from all this. The the refinancing of high yield companies isn't really this year. There's not a lot of companies. There are companies who have to come to market and refinance their loans, and they're going to face those tighter conditions. The big refinancing walls is probably still 12, 18 months away in terms of all the companies who have bonds or, or debt that has to be refinanced. And they will face higher rates. And that it's sort of a, a longer process. That's not the immediate process, right? We're, we're all dealing with just the market's response to all these things much quicker than, hey, the refinancing takes time to refinance. That's why people say the monetary policy works with a long and variable lag. It takes time for some of this stuff to work through the economy versus the markets, which react right away in real time to, to all the stuff that's going on. Yeah. Um, and I, th I guess that's one thing I've been kind of trying to work through in my head is you know, we're, we're kind of saying that the Fed are probably going to go 25. They probably shouldn't because monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. But if they don't, and this banking crisis kind of resolves itself, we've seen a big kind of drop in rates. And like you were just kind of talking about with mortgages and, you know, credit cards, whatever, auto loans, if you know, rates have dropped and then people then start to take advantage, re advantage, let's say, of these kind of falling rates. 
does that then increase economic activity and then lead to potentially uh, a double wave of inflation? If you look back in history, 1970s, 1980s, we have seen that kind of double wave of inflation as the Fed kind of try and get it under control. They take their foot off the gas, it kind of accelerates a little bit again. Are we at risk of that or what are your kind of thoughts on on that? You know, I I also host a podcast called Behind the Markets and you know, we actually had the CIO, head of multi-asset solutions from Royal London Asset Management, Trevor Greedham, on our show just last week. And he called it spikeflation. And he sees things spiking and, and having these series and robust levels of bulls and, and bears of for inflation and and you know, largely suggested commodities as a strategic allocation called five percent across low risk and higher risk portfolios to deal with that higher inflation tendencies. You know, our, our view right now, uh, sort of at least the Jeremy Siegel wisdom tree view was that the current cycle was that inflation was going to come down. The trend, as I mentioned, was that Fed was too tight, that the housing data was biasing a lot of the official statistics, that that pressure was coming down, the more sensitive real-time data was showing inflation was coming down. I'm sympathetic to the view that Trevor shared that there are some structural issues. I mean, geopolitical issues, supply chain issues, the going from China, which was a big deflationary force for the last few decades, we're moving away from that. And all sorts of things saying there are some longer term things out there that might not get you back to the 2% goal that we had. And so that's where where Trevor's view of spiky inflation or spikeflation coming from here and there could materialize. Um, and, and I think that's where you think about the longer term allocations to commodities to hedge both stocks. You see what happened last year where stocks and bonds declined together. Commodities were a very useful hedge. You know, I, I think, but our tactical short run view would be that it's coming down this year. You know, now you could say what what could save the economy is, I mean, we do expect unemployment to pick up. It's surprised that unemployment hasn't picked up. All this banking situation should get that to pick up even faster is can we have unemployment go up and real GDP that does not decline? That'll be one of the big questions. And, and coming into the air, we thought it's possible. We thought productivity might accelerate after being in the record doldrums. We had recordly poor productivity. And we thought this year unemployment might rise a point or so, maybe more. And But productivity would offset that. So you'd have sort of a flattish, you know, positive real GDP growth. That's the hope for the economy as well as for profits. You know, if the Fed is hiking still partly with the view that the economy is going to be able to stand all these hikes and and still grow robustly was perhaps the earnings estimates on the S&P, which were $220 essentially for this year's earnings. Most people are starting to get worried, hey, this will be 200 or below a recession. The banks alone uh, could cause a big drop in earnings. Uh, But if you have a productivity rebound after record doldrums, perhaps there's upside surprises to earnings and the market as a result. Hey, I'm Naomi Prakash, Chief Editor at Finimize. Our mission is to help increase the wealth of a generation. Our team of editors and expert financial analysts provide timely insight into the ups and downs of markets and help you make sense of all your investing options. At Finimize.com, you can sign up to our free daily newsletter and try out our premium app for free, where you can find a range of news, analysis, and deep dives that cut through the jargon. And with access to an engaged community of like-minded investors, you'll be better placed to make your investments with confidence. 
So download the Finimize app to try our premium content today. How optimistic are you about the resilience of earnings going forward? Um, and in this environment that you've kind of talked about where we, let's say, we assume that inflation is going to come down, there may be a bit of volatility with this kind of banking crisis. What does um, you know your ideal asset allocation, of course, it, it differs for different people, but how should retail investors think about equities, fixed income, commodities that you've talked about, potentially a, a 5% allocation to emerging markets, you know, all these kind of themes that we kind of were reading about heading into 2023. How do you think about your kind of portfolio allocation um, for the rest of the year? Well, emerging markets are interesting in being, you know, perhaps on just a different cycle led by China, right? So China is coming out of their lockdown and has a whole unique set of factors, very different from the rest of us who are now having all sorts of other issues and, and sort of sort of more closed economy from that banking dynamic as well. We're having more of a, a banking panic in the US and Europe. Maybe China skates through this in a little bit different, better spot. And so I think EM is interesting in, in that it sort of could be on its own different path. And so there's definitely geopolitical questions. And there's still the ongoing war, uh, obviously, in Europe with Ukraine. You know, so the question is, is there a positive surprise and and some coming together there that helps de-risk Europe, de-risks emerging markets in Russia that's very positive for China? I think there's a case for that, you know, that would be very positive for the global economy uh, while we're facing with all these other banks. Now, that obviously, that could get worse. And that would put all sorts of other questions. But, you know, I, we came into the year expecting a good year in stocks, good year in bonds, thinking that bond rates would drop and that would support equities, even if there's an earnings slowdown, that even if the, a recession and earnings deteriorated, that the Fed pivot would provide enough. Now, they're pivoting potentially for a bad reason. They're pivoting because we could have a a real dramatic slowdown. So it's different than them pivoting for our view that we wanted them to recognize that inflation was no longer an issue. And so let's see how quickly that pivot does come. But, you know, last year was largely a multiple compression, not an earnings compression. It was is the, the highest expensive stocks came down on a multiple basis. The S&P came down on just discount rates rising, higher cost of capital, put over those discounted cash flows, brought the multiples down and, and caused the sell-off. We thought the Fed would be cutting quickly. It looks like that probably will be the case, just how quickly. And so that still is is supportive for the markets and you know how supportive it will depend on how deep the recession goes, how much worse this gets. Um, and that's not noble exactly today. But you know, we think stocks represent reasonably fair values. Bonds, I mentioned the high yield bonds that we like. I mean, treasuries with one week duration at five is the best deal in treasury world. I mean, we we're still not overweight duration in our bond portfolios that you could get USFRs or floating rate treasury TF with just one week duration rates reset every week with the Fed. You know, it's, it's, it's a strange world with the inverted curve that you're getting paid the highest yields with the least amount of duration risk. So we still like that as a ballast of short term bond portfolios as a ballast for if you're saying, hey, where am I going for money market type exposure? Um, it, it's obviously got a, a daily changing NAV. So not this traditional money market fund, but it is a place that people are looking for short duration, one week duration type exposure. Uh, and, and we've been saying it's a way to, to best reflect these rising Fed rates. So that is, uh, you know, how we, we we're, we're suggesting p- people position in bonds and taking a little bit more risk with high yield bonds. And, 
and not forgetting the global diversification where you're seeing, I think, emerging markets on its own on own path. There was one thing you said there about the discount rate. And um, obviously, we saw discount rates and the cost of capital increase dramatically well, last year into this year. But now, how do you think about the terminal rate? Um, and what I mean by that is just maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, um, I think we were looking to go to 5.56% on the terminal rate. That's much, much lower now, uh, around like 4%, you know, towards towards that. And how do tech stocks fit into this discussion? I've heard someone say that tech stocks are now defensive in this current environment. And what I mean specifically by that is not the kind of, you know, let's say, uh, speculative favorites, the ARC, the super long duration, but maybe the Googles, the Microsofts, the Amazons, et cetera, that have those high free cash flows that you mentioned earlier. Are they defensive in this environment? Yeah, would you allocate some of your capital towards the tech stocks? In terms of the terminal rate first, um, you know, I think we're very close to the terminal rate and, and perhaps the terminal Fed funds rate is after this next 25 basis point hike on Wednesday. Uh, that's it. Um, I, I think that's probably what is most likely to happen as, as we're discussing here. So let's say we're at the terminal. We're going to basically be close to five uh, and then they start cutting a little bit later this year, maybe by June. Tech, I, I do say tech started the pressure with uh, the rate hiking cycle. Now, going forward, it's going to be for that sector. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot about what happens to earnings. You're actually seeing a lot of those companies respond positively to, interestingly, you're seeing layoffs being announced day by day, more companies announcing layoffs. Meta's had a number of rounds of layoffs. Amazon is being announced with more rounds of layoffs. You know, and, and that comes back to that productivity question I talked about, where perhaps earnings come in better because firms are getting rid of the less productive workers. They're, they're, they're looking at it. They had so much revenue growth for so long, it was almost like they didn't care about expenses. They just let the expenses keep growing. And now they're taking a second look at all of those things. Now, parts of the, the tech sector are real value stock. I mean, for a while, I think Meta was a real cheap value stock. Google was getting to the place where it's getting to be lower than market multiples. You know, Apple and Microsoft still not cheaper than the market, but have this additional quality feature that they've been these sort of prime, you could say, defensive tech companies in many ways. But, you know, I, there's still a segment of tech that's well more expensive than the market. So if we're talking about the S&P at 17 to 18 times earnings, uh, maybe sort of 18 times next year's earnings if the, the analysts come in right. You have parts of tech in the mid-20s, a little bit below mid-20s. That's where there still could be pressure, in my view. I mean, there's parts of the market, if you just go absent tech, if you say you pay a dividend, you could get to 13 to 14 times forward 12-month earnings. And if you go to high dividend stocks, you're in the 10 to 11 times earnings. Uh, now, that's going to have a little bit more banks than the traditional market. So, you got all these things have different levels of risk. I mean, I think there's still valuation risk in some of the tech companies. Some of them, I'd say, are cheaper than the market. I think I think Meta is one of those, and, and Google is one of those. And there are some that are getting to be more value-like. But the broad tech as a whole is still expensive. I think they still face that valuation compression risk. It's going to be all about earnings. Can their earnings grow at the rate that they were historically? You haven't really had an earnings slowdown in that sector. I think that's the the key risk going forward is that their earnings can't keep up with the pace that they were. You had this venture capital cycle that was fueling spending. That's going to be paired back. And will that have ripple effects 
across the big tech companies, uh, it would not surprise me. And so I think that's where I still favor traditional value. But, you know, value obviously has its pitfalls of being more cyclical, more energy, more banks, uh, and you got to know where that is. Uh, but I think the cheap valuations can win uh, over the long run there. Yeah, that, that was a really interesting last point about value versus growth. So within that value, um, just to kind of touch in, where do you see the most value? Um, in, in which sectors and how would you kind of play that for the rest of the year, would you say? So purely on a multiple basis, you know, emerging market value is the, the, is the really the cheapest around. So that goes back to the point on China being on its own cycle. And so if you if you went to high dividend stocks in emerging markets, you're talking small single digit PE ratio. So if you view some of the global economic cycle risk is different in, in emerging markets, China, Brazil, you have a combination of commodities plus sort of banks in emerging markets being on a different cycle than the US and developed world. Partly they took the inflation medicine earlier, they changed their rates, they sort of pay out rates maybe more so than the US banks are paying out their rates. Uh, so if you view those companies as on their own cycle, EM value is definitely a very interesting place for a China growth cycle and a resolution in any conflict over in Russia, Ukraine. Now, if absent just EM value and, and DEM is our high dividend emerging market ETF that goes absent EM value, you know, that version is in the US is DHS. It's high dividend US stocks. Again, that 10 to 11 PEs. It does have, you know, about 20% banks and 20% in energy. So those are two sectors. Uh, you know, energy has come way down. I actually think energy is probably to our point on hedging the inflation risk. I think the energy sector is actually attractive from that perspective. It has a unique angle for that. The banks are the, the big question mark at the moment. And so th that might have earnings compression risk more so than, than any other risk. But, you know, I, I do think the 10 to 11 times earnings in today's market with the, the S&P at 18 times is a, is a, is actually defensive by itself there and, and helpful for, today's market environment. You know, so I think that taking that US high dividend, EM high dividend, those are two places that I would focus on. Yeah, that's really brilliant, Jeremy. Uh, I think that's a great place to end our conversation. So thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Eddie, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.